0: Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. NPR Music's Tiny Desk isn't just any old office desk. It's become a stage for artists like Adele, John Legend, Casey Musgraves, The National, and of course, T-Pain without autotune. If you're an undiscovered musician, you could play there too. Just submit a video to the Tiny Desk Contest for a chance to launch your path to stardom. Find out how to enter at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest. Cool, we are We good. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with our roundup of the week's political news. We've got less than two weeks to go into the Iowa caucuses, a tight race on both sides, and lots of emerging rifts between people in the same parties on the same sides. And we have two NPR interviews with leading candidates to talk about, Hillary Clinton and Ted Cruz. We'll also do a listener question. And we'll end the show, per usual, with Can't Let It Go, where we all share a thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, First, a few introductions. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter.
1: I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor.
2: I'm Sarah McCammon, political reporter covering the campaign.
0: And Sarah, you're coming to us from your home base in Georgia this week. Uh, You will miss Blizzard Nick Jonas. Sorry, not sorry, are you?
2: Yeah, it's like almost 60 (laughs) degrees here, but I I don't feel that bad about Mm it. mm
1: -hmm. At least it's not 98 degrees. Wow. Hey, you like that? I love that. My boy band uh, (laughs) reserve.
3: Okay, and we have a special guest this week. Ari Shapiro, host of All Things Considered. Welcome, Ari. Thank you. I am so happy to be back with a politics family that I called home for yeah. years back who when I was a White a long House history correspondent. With, yeah. And before that, you covered a campaign. That's right. So in 2012, you know I was stuff. with Romney. I knew this stuff. We'll see whether I know <laughs> it still. This is
1: a different campaign than the Mitt Romney one nomination. Amen.
3: <laughs> well, welcome, Ari. We're Thank glad you. to have you here because we're going to talk about one of your interviews this week with Hillary Clinton in yeah. San Antonio. How did that go? I heard there were peppers involved. <laughs> there were hot. Well, there was a discussion about hot peppers. She eats hot peppers every day on the campaign trail to stay healthy? Every raw day. jalapenos? Every day. Well, some days there are no fresh jalapenos available so she eats pickled ones. This was all previously reported. I knew this going into the interview. Uh-huh. I wanted to get the backstory from her so I asked her about it and she said it started in 1992 when her husband was running for president. Huh. So... You know, we had a conversation about that. We talked about Iran. We talked about Bernie Sanders. We talked about Iowa. We, we sat down for about half an hour and had a pretty wide-ranging conversation. We should say the transcript is on NPR.org if people want to read it in its entirety. It is. So what stood out the most for you in this conversation, Ari? I've heard a lot of people say they don't know what Hillary Clinton stands for. Hmm. Like, if you like, what can you put on a bumper sticker or in one sentence to encapsulate what she's all about? And we had an exchange where I said, it seems like a lot of the popularity of Donald Trump, uh, Bernie Sanders, is that they get really viscerous really angry on the campaign trail. And so I asked, what makes you angry?
4: Well, lots of things do. Most recently, what happened in Flint, Michigan, makes me really angry. The idea that you would have a community in the United States of America of nearly 100,000 people who were drinking and bathing in lead-contaminated water infuriates me. And that is a fundamental failure Uh, of, of government to protect the very people we represent. So I understand why people get angry. They're angry about the Great Recession, which so knocked everybody flat. I understand that. But I also know that once you've vented your anger, once you've gotten out there and roused all of those really strong passions, you've got to do something.
3: But to take Flint, Michigan, as an example, you talked about this on Sunday night at the debate. And you said, I was angry about Flint, Michigan. So I went on TV and talked about it. And I sent an aid and I put out a statement. And a lot of people said, if you were so angry, why didn't you go? You know, you're, you're, you're pinballing all over the country. If this is something that really gets you in the gut, why not go there?
4: Well, I think that's really unfair. Number one, as soon as I heard about it, I sent my aides. You know, I didn't want to go off half-cocked. I wanted to know what was happening and what the facts were. Let's get the facts first. You know, I am not someone who goes off half-cocked. I like to actually know what the facts are. I know that puts me at odds with some people these days in our political environment. Are you referring to Senator Sanders? Well, I'm referring mostly to the Republicans who seem to be very fact-adverse. Uh, so what I did and it
3: occurred to me that if you're looking election, for a slogan that can encompass called, what Hillary Clinton stands for, that, that might, might be it. That idea of I don't go off half-cocked. She cocked. is, anything, and I thought, cautious. That is what Hillary Clinton stands for. I don't go off half-cocked.
1: She's very cautious. And she took a shot directly at Republicans. You asked right. her if it was about Bernie right. Sanders. And she said, no, I'm
3: talking about Republicans. But I don't know if this is an election cycle where people want the cautious person who doesn't go off half-cocked. They may want the person who is going to project the anger that so many voters feel this year. And this conversation comes in the context of the
0: race, particularly in Iowa, getting really, really, really tight. Right. right. And then Bernie leading in, in polls in, New, uh, in Hampshire. New Hampshire. Correct.
3: Right. And she clearly came into the conversation primed to attack Bernie Sanders. She you know, there were a couple times she used the phrase far out. She compared her record on Iran to his record on Iran.
4: In some of the comments that Senator Sanders has been making, uh, there is room for disagreement and even concern. Take uh, his comments about Iran. Senator Sanders has said he'd like to see Iranian troops in Syria. I think that would be a terrible mistake. Syria is on the doorstep of Israel, just among one of the reasons why it would be. He has said he wants to see Saudi Arabia and Iran work together in a coalition to defeat ISIS. Well, you know, we're having a very big flare up of tension between two longtime adversaries, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Either he didn't understand that or thought that he could get away with saying what he said. And, and thirdly, let me say this. I think that when he said in the debate the other night that he would uh, would favor normalizing relations with Iran, that too was a fundamental misunderstanding of what it takes to do the patient diplomacy that i have experience in
3: yeah a couple things that i took away from the interview there have been politicians over time who i've interviewed or sort of spent time with off the record chatting with who i come away feeling like oh i have a different insight into you than i had from just seeing you on the stump or giving speeches mitt romney i really felt that way about to a certain extent barack obama you know how so with those two well mitt romney is much less of a robot in person casually than he comes across on tv okay um Barack Obama chatting informally, he's kind of broier, you know? Really? He's a bit more of like a dude. He kind of comes <laughs> across as like the basketball playing guy. Yeah. Guy. Okay. Um, Hillary Clinton, you know, we did make small talk before and after the conversation, and I didn't come away feeling like I have any kind of a different perspective really? on her than I did so before. So you couldn't crack the shell? Listen, I don't know if it's you couldn't crack the shell. I don't know if it's the person you see is the person you get. This is actually her authentic self. I don't know if it's just that she's been doing this for 30 years and they're now indistinguishable. I mean, I can't tell whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I didn't feel like there was something different and new that I'd never seen before hmm. chatting with her casually. Than it's also the...
1: also the heat of the campaign a week to go before you know a lot of pressure uh, right, involved for sure. in, yeah. as well. I mean. I just want to say about the peppers. We tried to fact check one part of what she had to say. Wait, how do you
0: fact check whether or not she? <laughs> there have been because, scientific
1: studies because, into whether hot peppers are so, actually good so for you. So she immune. said oh. that yes, in yes, 1992.
4: Yes. In 92, uh, I read an article about the special immune boosting uh, <laughs> characteristics of hot peppers. And I thought, well, that's interesting because, you know, campaigning is pretty demanding. And so I started adding hot peppers. And then I got into eating them raw wherever they weren't really, really too hot. Um, And all I can tell you, knock on wood, is that um, maybe that's one of the reasons I'm so healthy and I have so much stamina and endurance out there today. Uh Are they
3: really healthy for you? I don't like spicy food myself. The evidence is mixed. There is something called capsaicin, I think I'm pronouncing uh-huh. that right. correctly, yep. in hot peppers that may have immune boosting properties. It's
2: definitely like if you like hot stuff, it's like a it's kind of it can be a mood booster. Seriously, because I mean like <laughs> okay, you're going to have to fact check this claim, but what I've read about it <laughs> is that the spice it's like it actually like stimulates your endorphin response and that's yeah. part of why people like Spicy food.
3: She said uh, health and also stamina. She attributes it with okay. giving her health and stamina.
0: So you mentioned earlier, Ari, that Hillary has been more prepared to attack Bernie Sanders. Uh, and this week, her surrogates have been doing so. They've been using the S word, correct? A title he embraces,
1: socialist. socialist. Right. And what's key about that is that surrogates of hers, Claire McCaskill, for one, the senator from Missouri, said that she doesn't think that somebody who is a socialist could win in a state like Missouri. When Missouri, you know, Is that true? Has, well, I don't know know if it's true exactly but what we have seen in polling is that socialist ranks below atheist for the favorability ratings as mm-hmm. to whether or not somebody could could win or support someone who said they are a socialist. We
0: mentioned uh, Bernie Sanders and I want to talk some more about him. There has been this interesting rift this week over what he called planned parenthood. He was on Rachel Maddow this week talking about Hillary Clinton being part of the establishment. He also called Planned Parenthood part of the establishment. And lots of people on Twitter said, how dare you say that? You know, they're fighting to survive. They're not the establishment, right? And so you saw this rift between a lot of, I guess, people that support Hillary and women saying this was a really dumb statement for this man to make. And then the hashtag I'm so establishment is created to defend Planned Parenthood and say, hey, wait, it's not the establishment. It ends up being co-opted by Bernie supporters to bash Hillary Clinton. And it was just this whole two or
1: three days of fighting between the whole food set.
0: The so, whole
3: food set? The is whole right? food set. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so here's here's the thing about this though that stands out to me. I mean, it's this word establishment that suddenly Why is that a, is dirty, a word? dirty word, right? And because the fact is planned parenthood has been part of the democratic establishment, one of the pillars of helping the democrats maintain support, they help raise money for them, they support candidates. What's happened in this election on both sides is that the word establishment is not a good thing. You don't want to be part of the system. And that's a challenge for Hillary Clinton because she she is is most most seen as related to the establishment. Remember, Bernie Sanders has never been a Democrat in his life. He's an independent. Hmm. He's never been on a ballot as a Democrat. And, you know, even remember that data war where uh, Bernie Sanders campaign wound up seeing Hillary Clinton's voter data Mm -hmm. when the firewall was down. You know, Even though Bernie Sanders had to fire some staffers over that, his supporters were saying, you're going to trust the DNC? We don't trust the DNC. So the establishment all around, dirty word this time. Yeah.
2: The thing I'm really wondering about all of this is how this plays with young women, because I feel like... Uh, And Domenico might have the polling numbers in front of him more than I would. But, you know, my sense is that that group is probably a little more in play. There's so, so much youthful energy for Bernie Sanders. And yet a lot of women excited about Hillary Clinton. And you see a lot of a lot of energy among young women who are directly affected and whose friends are directly affected by, you know, Planned Parenthood. And so I wonder how, you know, to what extent Bernie Sanders comment sort of turns off that group.
3: Especially when you look at the fact that women under 45 are overwhelmingly more likely to support Bernie Sanders. Women over 65 are overwhelmingly more likely to support Hillary Clinton. Hmm. This could have an impact on that under 45 female group that Hillary Clinton is really trying to court. Yeah. And what was what stood out to me? It's like usually most liberals are
0: all on the same page with Planned Parenthood. They support it. And that's it. And seeing a rift over an issue like Planned Parenthood shows how divisive this race is getting on all sides.
2: I think you're getting at something interesting there, though. In, in the sense that this race is so divisive and it's even within uh, parties, sometimes the liberal, conservative, mainstream, you know, right wing, left wing. Those those labels are maybe even less important at this moment than than establishment versus anti-establishment. I mean, that's where the divide is and everybody's scrambling to be anti-establishment, and, and maybe, maybe Bernie took it too far that time.
1: And let's just remember, though, these are primaries, and these kinds of divides happen. What's most important is how the sides come together, and certainly when you see this divide in the Democratic primary, it's not the kind of divide that you see on the Republican side. 80-plus percent of Bernie Sanders supporters say they have a favorable rating of Hillary Clinton, and they're willing to support her if she were to become the nominee, but they want to go through this fight first.
0: Yeah. I kind of we, we don't have time, probably. But that little metaphor allegory she used of the, the turtle on, on the a turtle. fence post. Can you say talk about that,
4: Ari?
3: What happened with this? As we were talking about Flint, she said.
4: So I then, as you know, uh, went on Rachel Maddow and said the governor needs to ask for the help that is required to help the people he represents. Within two hours, he did. I think that's a pretty good track record. Do you
3: think he did it because you went on Rachel Maddow and said he needs to do this?
4: Well, you know, I lived a lot of years in Arkansas, and one of my favorite sayings I learned is, if you find a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by accident. I think it was quite telling. Which I later learned,
3: actually, is an expression that Bill Clinton used to use uh, a lot. What well, does I know it he mean, does. exactly? Well, it means that... The turtles can't climb turtles things? Turtles can't climb fences. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had to put it there.
1: <laughs> Okay, OK, I know.
0: Just, I, I, I I knew what it meant. I wanted to be a oh, good oh. interview and ask what it <laughs> meant. I know things, y'all. All right. So in just a minute, we're going to get into the GOP side of this race. Sarah talked to Ted Cruz this week uh, and there's been a reemergence of a certain former governor of Alaska, plus a listener question and can't let it go. But first, a quick break. Stay with us. BRB. All right. We're back. We got to talk about the GOP side of the race this week and the big return to the national spotlight of Sarah Palin. She was in Iowa this week to endorse
2: the next president of our great United States of America, Donald J. Trump. Mr. Trump, you're right. Look back there in the press box. Heads are spinning. Media heads are spinning. This is going to be so much fun.
3: That was it. That speech was a doozy. We're yeah. like we're are like poltergeists. <laughs> I guarantee you, heads actually were spinning because having been <laughs> on a campaign before, stump speeches can get so boring and so repetitious. When you get something as different and dynamic and eye popping yeah. as the Sarah Palin speech, heads spin. People get excited. It's like, oh, we've got something new to dig exactly. into, something new to talk right. about. Sarah, how'd you like it?
2: Oh, you know, this media head spinning thing, it's just a theme on the campaign trail this year in general, at least on the Republican side. And, and I, you know, you also hear uh, certainly Bernie Sanders criticizing the media for for maybe missing things. But, uh, I mean, I was just, you know, with Ted Cruz this past week and one of his most popular punchlines that he's been using in his stump speech for weeks is, Uh, At the end of my presidency, we're going to have so many journalists and editors and newspaper reporters checking themselves into therapy. So, you know, I think Sarah Palin was just tapping right into that anti-establishment and anti-media sentiment that we have right now. But she, uh, you know, she can give a speech. Oh, yes, she can. Well, I am here because like you, I know that it is now or never. I'm in it to win it because we believe in America and we love our freedom. So
1: what does this endorsement actually mean? Though? I was, was going to say beyond the media stuff, you know, this was a bad week for Ted Cruz. because How so? he, he started the week up in the polls in Iowa. He was seen as the favorite. People were starting to coalesce and say, look, it looks like it's going to be Ted Cruz. All of a sudden, Sarah Palin jumps on the stage. Somebody who really boosted Ted Cruz in his 2012 long shot Senate Bid and she goes with Donald Trump. And in many respects, Donald Trump and Sarah Palin make perfect sense together. They are bookends to each other. Sarah Palin in 2008, you had people ripping off the McCain part of the bumper sticker and just had Palin on their cars. And, you know, people were irritated and outraged with how, with the direction of the country conservatives were. The McCain Palin ticket wound up losing. The Tea Party was birthed. In that wake, Donald Trump comes along, questions Barack Obama's birth certificate. Sarah Palin's not going to run in 2012, and here's Donald Trump. And the two of them are big stars, and without Sarah Palin, there is no Donald Trump, and without Barack Obama, there's neither of them. Right? Yeah. And
3: Domenico, as you talk about a bad week for Ted Cruz, this was also the week that Iowa Governor Terry Branstad right. said overminded body, more or less. Yeah. And Bob Dole has and that's said Cruz his... should not get it either, right? Right.
1: And that's you know, and the Branstad stuff is because of ethanol, which is fascinating because Ted Cruz is against the renewable fuels standard. Uh, and but what's fascinating to me is that national issues have really dominated this campaign. Local politics. They always say all politics is local, not in this election. It's been all politics is national, frankly. And so now they've injected a little bit of local politics back into it.
0: Okay. So all of this is complicating things for Trump's biggest competition right now, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Uh, Sarah, you spent some quality time with him this week. Am I right?
2: That's right. I was on the press bus following behind the Ted Cruz bus in New Hampshire, where he's making a he's been making a big push. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about his strategy in New Hampshire. He and his campaign are really stressing that they don't feel like they have to win any one early state. It's debatable whether that is true, but that is what they are saying. They do have a really uh, strong ground game in all four early states and beyond the Super Tuesday states that voted in, in March. And yeah, here's what he had to say about that.
5: We don't view any of these one states as a must-win for us. We believe we'll do well in each of the first four states. And 10 days after South Carolina is Super Tuesday. It's the so-called SEC primary. It's states like Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee and Arkansas and Oklahoma and Texas. We've got an amazing team on Super Tuesday. And so we believe we're positioned to do well. In the first four states, and we think Super Tuesday is going to be a tremendous day for us.
2: Of course, a lot of people are saying he really needs to win Iowa. Certainly has been campaigning hard there. But, you know, it was notable that he spent five days in New Hampshire just a couple weeks before the Iowa caucuses. He's obviously putting a lot of emphasis on that state as well. I think
1: it is really interesting that he spent five days in New Hampshire because being in New Hampshire, he needs to be watching his Iowa flank. If he winds up losing... Both states. You think he'll lose both states? I'm not saying that he's going to lose both states. I mean, voters will figure that out in a week and a half. But if Donald Trump is catching up on him, there's the potential Donald Trump sneaks in the back door and winds up beating him in Iowa and beating him in New Hampshire while he was off. In New Hampshire and not cleaning things up but and buttonholing it. See up what I heard Iowa. when
0: I was in Iowa that like on the GOP side, Cruz has the best ground game. Is uh, he just saying that's fine. I'm not worried? But you know I got what? This. You risk
1: you risk looking greedy okay. and you risk you know because you want a second place finish in New Hampshire or something. You know, there's, there's nothing he gains out of a second place finish in New Hampshire if he finished third or fourth in New Hampshire. If he won Iowa to be able to take that into those southern states on Super Tuesday on March 1st, that's what he needs to do. Hmm. And if he wants up not watching that Iowa flank. You know he has some risk in in that strategy.
3: I'm, I, I don't know. I'm just thinking that four years ago Mitt Romney won New Hampshire, but Rick Santorum won Iowa, Newt Gingrich won South Carolina. It was a long primary slog, but ultimately he carried the day. Now, how much of that was because he had the money? How much of it was because well, he had the institutional support? But he
1: had to. But he had to win New Hampshire, right? I mean, like. Remember, on caucus night, everyone thought Mitt Romney won Iowa. So he actually wound up getting all the momentum out of Iowa that Rick Santorum didn't get. Rick Santorum wound up winning by 34 votes three weeks weeks later. later. But the
0: difference between Romney and Cruz, like, Romney could afford to wait because he had the establishment always there for him. Cruz doesn't
3: have that, right? Right. So who is the establishment behind? I mean, we're not even talking about Chris Christie, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, because right now none of them is polling anywhere near... Cruz and Trump. And so you've got this debate among the establishment of if it's going to be Cruz or Trump. I mean, the, the conversation is which is the lesser of two evils that's, right now, that's why the Republican we're seeing, establishment. But
1: that's why we're seeing this battle royale take place among Republican establishment candidates in New Hampshire. I mean, those, those candidates that you named and throw John Kasich in there, the governor of Ohio, they're all battling for second place or at least who's going to beat one of the other because they think that if they can coalesce, their working theory is that if they can coalesce around one of them, beyond New Hampshire, that they could come back and beat a Trump or a Cruz as they split votes before March 15th. Now, the thing, though, about that is when you look at polling an NBC Wall Street Journal pull out this week said when you put a three way race in between Marco Rubio, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, Donald Trump still won. And, you know, uh,
0: Sarah, if I'm correct, Cruz in a roundabout way kind of spoke about Trump in your talk with him, correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, I asked him about Trump and um, he, I think over the course of the days I was with him uh, and certainly the last couple of days we've seen him release an an attack ad on Trump and Trump has released an attack ad against Cruz. Um, You're seeing more pointed attacks on Donald Trump.
5: The most important judgment the voters are making is who is best prepared to be commander in chief, who has the experience, who has the knowledge, who has the judgment and understanding, the clarity of vision and the strength of resolve to keep this country safe, to identify our enemy, to defeat our enemy, and to keep Americans safe. And I think the American people want a steady hand at the helm. They want someone they know and trust. They don't want to wake up every day wondering if the latest polls might set off the commander-in-chief into a frenzy of tweets. So he's
2: making the case here that he's the one with the experience and the temperament to be commander in chief and that that Trump basically can't be trusted. And, you know, at least among the voters that I met who went to these cruise events, that seemed to be a really compelling argument. I, I met a lot of people who were considering a range of candidates. But what I heard about Trump a lot was I like what Trump's saying. I just don't know if he's really, you know, presidential material. And it seemed like Cruz was sort of second on their list for many of these voters.
1: No, it's just remarkable that the argument that he's making is that he has the temperament to be the one you to talk win. to anyone in the Senate. I, anyone, they will fight. Right. You know, the problem is they, the Republicans in the Senate, the ones who want to, you know, keep the government open, will blame Ted Cruz for undermining a lot of what they've tried to do, including shutting down the government. And the problem, though, that the Republican establishment has when they view Ted Cruz as someone who doesn't have the temperament to lead is that that is exactly the kind of person that the Tea Party is supporting and wants because they see him as somebody who's okay with burning down the house in in so many ways because they need to change and blow up the entire system.
0: And so All of this battle between who is the worst of the worst comes to a head this week in an article in the National Review bashing Trump. And then some things happened after that.
1: Well, we keep talking about the Republican establishment kind of losing its mind over the fact that you have a Donald Trump Ted Cruz race and the National Review, a very influential conservative magazine, uh, very much on the establishment side of things, saying no way do they think that Donald Trump should be president of the United States. They came out with this very strongly, and the Republican National Committee kicked the National Review, the National Review, off of one of its debate sponsorships that's coming up. So they're not even allowed to host the debate. And this comes after NBC was thrown off of the debates too. So it's the same debate actually. NBC, National Review, and Telemundo were together on this one debate, and the RNC. You know, I think. Here's the thing that I think a lot of people are misunderstanding about this, that there's a couple layers to what the RNC is doing here. You know, people are going to say, wow, this is the Republican establishment, the, the Republican National Committee hugging Donald Trump even closer and saying they're OK with Donald Trump. They pick Donald Trump over the National Review. Here's the thing about this that people really need to understand. This is all an effort to keep Donald Trump from running third party. Um, because the thing is, if he you, has
3: said he wouldn't do that. Well, he? Just not trust that? Well, if well, here's
1: the standard for Donald Trump on whether or not he won't run. If he's treated fairly, okay? If he's seen, Fairly, right, in well, quotes. Well, right. So this is the thing. If the party, if they were to back National Review, and you heard Donald Trump going after National Review before the debate saying they wanted them kicked off, that he's not being treated fairly, suddenly you're going to have all the articles being written about, oh, would Donald Trump run third party? Might he run independent? Does he not feel like he's being treated fairly? Doing this, it shuts that whole conversation off. You might irritate National Review, but guess what? They're not somebody who could get 30, 35 percent of the vote in a general election if he ran by himself. But
2: Domenico, my big question about that is, okay, so it might tamp down that fire right now. But if Trump doesn't get the nomination in a couple of months, will this even matter? I mean, will that be enough for him to go, Okay, I'm just going to walk away. I'm done.
1: Look, uh, firemen fight the fires that are in front of them. Uh, I'm not sure that they and can And turtles uh, don't get on a fence post t- by
0: themselves. <laughs> Fish don't fry in the kitchen, beans don't I, burn on the grill. I
1: think that they have employed <laughs> so folksy. they have employed a new fire department in this whole thing, and you know, they are making it up as they go along.
0: All right. Um, today we're gonna do a new thing. Well, not a new thing, it's the second week in a row doing this. We have a listener question. This one we got via email from a listener named Kim. She wrote My 13-year-old son wants to know why Iowa is the first state to have a caucus slash primary. Why are they so important? I'm sure there's a good reason. There is. There's a reason. There is a reason. Is Uh, it a good reason? It's Uh, a good reason. So I I did a
3: long seven-minute story
0: about this because it bothered me too, and I wanted to figure out why they're first. Um, We could talk a lot about it. Let's give you the shorter answer. Um, It all comes out of the 1968 Democratic Convention. Which was full of violence and protest over the Vietnam War, over racial unrest. It was a very, very messy convention. And lots of people felt like the choice of the nominee that year was made in a smoky room with party elites. So the party says, we want to open this up and make it seem like the people have a say. So they spaced out the entire calendar for all of the states to pick a
1: a nominee. They wanted to make it more tied to pro- to actual primary and caucus voting, right? So they wind up, you know, making it so that people will have more of a say rather than it being like the smoke-filled room thing. Exactly. And then what wound up happening though with Iowa is they what? have the longest calendar. Well, so right. Iowa
0: has. Well, first they have the caucuses, then is so they the have sixteen
1: hundred and eighty-three precinct caucuses this year. Yeah, so that creates eleven thousand plus delegates to county and then to district and state conventions over months. So there's four big things that yeah. have to
0: happen before the national convention. So because Iowa has the longest calendar, they had to space it out the most. They ended up being first. Just so, so Iowa happens to be, to be first. Yeah. A guy named Jimmy Carter says, let me do well in Iowa and see how that goes. He does really well, goes on to be president. After that, everyone says, oh,
1: Iowa. It's a thing. And well, and then what locked it in was in the 1980s when New Hampshire wanted to be the first primary in in the nation. And they had put this law in the books that they had to be the first primary. So Iowa and New Hampshire created this deal between the two of them that New Hampshire would let Iowa go first and uh, as a caucus and New Hampshire would go first as a primary following Iowa.
2: But in New Hampshire, they love to talk about how they have the first primary and they don't usually mention that there is a nominating contest before that.
3: My only Thanks. thought on this is, will anybody under a certain age appreciate what smoke-filled rooms means? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Indoor smoking hasn't been allowed for some time <laughs> Indoor smoking. Also, it's
0: important to point out, which we have before, there's a difference between a caucus and a primary. In a caucus, especially on the Dem side, there's a lot of talking back and forth, deciding, changing your mind, going from one side of a room to the other for your guy. It's not just- On the, the Democratic girl. side. On the, yes, or girl. On the Dem side. For the GOP, you have some talks, some speeches, but then there's a secret ballot.
3: Yeah. Well, and and so this means that caucusing requires a lot more time and a lot more commitment, a lot more devotion than just going and casting a ballot in a primary. And that's why getting your people fired up and ready to go, in the words of Barack Obama, makes so much more of a difference in a caucus state rather than a primary state.
2: And that's why polls of Iowa voters are so tough to do. Yeah. Because the caucus is a little more complicated.
0: Exactly. All right. Now it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share a thing that we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Domenico?
1: Well, look, I know that you guys have talked a lot about polls. You did a whole podcast on polls, but I just can't let go the idea that we have all these polls coming out, all this volatility. Everyone's asking me, what does this poll mean? Is Bernie Sanders up by 30 points in New Hampshire? Is he going to win Iowa? Uh, What's happening here? Look, I think everyone needs to take a step back and calm down, chill out just a little bit because we have a week and a half until people are actually going to vote. We don't need to try to predict what's going to happen. This is a time when pollsters switch from what's known as a registered voter model to a likely voter model. What does all that mean? It essentially is when the pollsters try to figure out who is going to vote? How do they figure that out? Well, what they essentially uh, measure is enthusiasm. So if a pollster calls you, Sam, and says, How enthusiastic are you about this election on a scale of one to 10? Now, because you cover, because you do a podcast, That's going to be a, so a one. Ex- okay. So there <laughs> you go. So you're out. You would be out of the uh, uh, actual likely voter model. They'll probably take something like the seven to tens. So if you're measuring enthusiasm, Only. And you're not going by, let's say some pollsters are really good at figuring out voting trends and who has voted in the past to factor that in.
0: But that's so different, this election, right? Because Trump has screwed up the whole equation. And
1: And what's even worse about all of that is Iowa. Because trying to figure out who a likely caucus goer is when so few people caucus in the first place, it is really, really tough. So instead of all of us amateurs trying to sit around and figure out what does this poll
3: mean specifically. What should we do?
1: We should just take a breath, step back, and, you know, if you want to give me a call. I can uh, help What's walk you Domenico, a...
3: <laughs> I want to give you a call. Will you come on All Things Considered and talk more about which polls we do and don't pay attention to? Because I think there are a lot of people whose heads are exploding with every new poll, and it would be really yeah. helpful if you would come on ATC and explain this in a little more detail yeah. for us. Happy yeah, happy to do it. Awesome. What's your favorite poll right now?
1: Well, there's only one poll that I really trust in Iowa. Oh, and Coke versus Pepsi. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> boxers or briefs. I don't know, whatever. But you've Boxer got briefs. No brainer. Okay, so uh, TMI. TMI. It's was just you know, but <laughs> Ann Selzer, who's a pollster in I Iowa. I interviewed her for a story of mine. Uh, well, recently. that's because you're a very smart person and you interview very good people. Oh. That might be because you have good editors. I'm
2: just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> yes, that's yes, my editor. Um, <laughs> And because she knows her stuff. She
1: She really knows her stuff. And she'll have a poll out a couple days before the caucuses. You can look at that pretty generally. She got it right in 08 that Obama was going to win. Everyone was like, is she going to be wrong this time? Um, So she hasn't put the poll out yet. It has not come out yet. There have been Des Moines Register polls. She's the one who said back in August when she saw Bernie Sanders within seven points of Hillary Clinton that this looks like 08 all over again. Because and it looks how... even
3: more like 08 today
0: than it did in August. Yeah, it certainly does. And we got to say, there was a lot of love for Ann Selzer this week in an earlier episode of the podcast all about polls. Go listen to it. It's really good. Ari, what can you not
3: let go this week? It is one word, Sam. One word? One word. Tell me the word. The word is squirmishes.
0: Right? Okay. I.
3: There's a word for that kind of word. Yes, a portmanteau. Yes. Uh, a mashup of two words. Yes. Of course, this was a word that Sarah Palin used in her choose-your-adjective endorsement <laughs> speech of Donald Trump, which the audience devoured and the media devoured, perhaps for opposite reasons.
2: And you quit footing the bill for these... Nations who are oil rich, we're paying for some of their skirmishes that have been going on for centuries. You know, I don't know
3: if she thinks of these things ahead of time or if it was just a word that came out, spur of the moment, but I think a lot of people, even people who are not Sarah Palin fans, really admired that particular word as kind of. A perfect new embodiment of what is going on in the Middle East and how people in the United States or, may feel or about she it. just got it wrong. But yeah okay, how would
0: you use the word squirmish in everyday
3: language? What would you describe like what would you use to, to the word? Well for? if we're looking beyond sectarian conflicts in the Middle East we are uh, you know in editorial meetings in the morning <laughs> when we're talking about whether we should use the time in the show to cover this story or that story, we might have a little squirmish about it, especially okay. when it
1: gets really painful.
3: Yeah. Because you make yeah. sure If it's awkward, if it's like a sensitive subject that makes you go, oh, I See, don't know like if for, I'm really comfortable talking about this. My
2: husband's the kind of guy that's like super uncomfortable with confrontation. He's like from the South and everything is sort of, you know, you, you don't you don't directly confront people. And so he loves this word. He says it's sort of like like a skirmish that involves squirming. And yeah. it's like the perfect description of that feeling.
0: I constantly have a squirmish when I'm at the grocery store waiting for the self checkout line, and you can't tell if you're up next or the other guy's uh, up next. And you're like, oh, no, no. you go first. No, you go first. No, you go
3: first. That's kind of a passive aggressive uh, squirmish, yes. I would mm-hmm. say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Those things happen. Which is
2: why the skirmish is an appropriate mashup with squirm because it's not just uncomfortable. It's like there's a little bit of a fight going on. So it's good.
3: If only Mitty's conflicts were a little more passive-aggressive and less (laughs) (laughs) passive-aggressive. One can hope, right? Sarah, what can
0: you not let go this week?
2: Oh, my gosh. Have you guys ever been in a situation, like, normally this happens, like, back in middle school where somebody references some pop culture thing, like some movie, and you're like, huh? And they're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you haven't, you have not heard of that? Where have you been? Right? Well, that happened to me, like, this week on, basically, with all of Twitter directing that sentiment at oh, me. No. So,
3: Oh, I you know guys... where you're going with this. <laughs> what happened? Because <gasps> I'm on Twitter and I saw this happen.
2: Uh, <laughs> right. I think everyone on Twitter saw this happen. So, I'm going to assume that since you haven't been living under a cave like I apparently have, you have heard of Triumph, the insult comic dog? He's been around
1: for a while. We've, yeah, tried, they... to get, uh-huh. we've tried to get him on the podcast, but... Yeah. Not on my watch. So,
2: <laughs> apparently, well, so here I'll just read you my tweet. I am the scene is Zeb's General Store in North Conway, New Hampshire. Cute little general store with preserves and all that stuff and Ted Cruz is talking. I look behind me and I see this thing and I tweet this. This, this guy, <laughs> this guy at Ted Cruz rally holding dog pu- puppet with Cuban <laughs> question mark cigar in its mouth has camera crew with him. And <laughs> <laughs>
0: i love you sarah i do
2: oh dear lord the, the anger that ensued on twitter like it was like if i didn't recognize elmo or like big bird or something i mean those there are were fair a few comparisons people... yeah. absolutely okay if you okay. watched
1: late night tv 15 years ago
0: you would know well, and then also was, like he, he had that yeah. big rift with eminem like at the vmas
1: that mm-hmm. was a moment he, 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 was was a, a he was a recurring yeah you know skit on conan which was the you know where he which i never
2: pop. watched sorry conan did he
1: say uh that this campaign is great for him to poop on
2: a lot of people on twitter <laughs> said that my tweet was great for them to poop on so it's apparently hulu's doing a politics special and that's why this was this was uh-huh, going
0: on uh-huh all right then but i got
2: a bunch more followers you guys and so that is oh, what- that's <laughs> what matters that is what yes. matters
0: all right um what can i not let go this week Uh, So on Monday, Donald Trump spoke at the Evangelical Christian College, Liberty University. Um, He was trying to make inroads with Christian voters. And at one point he tried to quote scripture and he mentioned the book of 2 Corinthians.
1: 2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 317. That's the whole ballgame. Where the spirit of the Lord, right? Where the spirit of the Lord
0: is... There is liberty.
3: Two Corinthians walk into a bar. That's exactly (laughs) it. I made that joke
0: on Twitter after the fact because you're supposed to say Second Corinthians. Like, it would be like. We know, Sam. Exactly. Yeah, like we we know, Sam. We church kids know know this. But it's like, it would be like Donald Trump talking about the two coming and not the second coming. Like, it was just weird. (laughs) So people joked about it, people tweeted about it. But I've been on this hunt now for the perfect joke. With the line, two Corinthians walk into a bar, and I can't figure one out yet. So, if you guys have ideas, well, let me it know.
1: depends on what a Corinthian like, what were characteristics of a Corinthian?
0: The Corinthians were well, aren't they marble columns. <laughs> no, it was a letter to the Corinthians. So, both yeah, the book... Corinthian church, exactly. Who wrote Corinthians, Sarah?
2: I think it was Apostle Paul, wasn't it? Paul he?
0: was writing letters to them to encourage them um, in the faith. Right? I am so And if you've been at a wedding,
1: <laughs> if you've been at a wedding, you know, the cliche. Is Paul's letter to the Corinthians.
0: Yes. Anyways, Twitter, if you all, any of you, have a really good two Corinthians joke for me, let me know, please. I want one. I really do. Okay, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for listening. Tell us if you like the show. Find us on Twitter. You can also email us at nprpolitics at npr.org. And catch our political coverage on your local public radio station
3: as well. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. Domenica Montanaro, political editor.
2: I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter.
3: And I'm Ari Shapiro, the host of All Things Considered. And Ari, thank you for being here today. It's been a
0: pleasure. We will see you all next time on the NPR Politics Podcast.